welcome to another episode of Evidence Into Action podcast. This is an Education Endowment Foundation podcast where we speak to experts in the field, teachers and practitioners in early year settings. Really pleased to focus this podcast on the early years, shining the light on best practice and speaking to colleagues in this sector with a particular emphasis on personal, social and emotional development. And I want to introduce my co-host, uh, the brilliant Nikki Cherry. Nikki, talk a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself as uh, your first time co-host on the podcast. No pleasure, Alex. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so hi, everyone. I'm Nikki Cherry. I am uh, an e- early years content specialist here at the EF. Um, I come with a sort of over 20 years background uh, teaching and as a teacher and a leader working mainly in deprived areas um, in a variety of different early years settings um, from children's centres, maintainers to schools to school-based and work really closely with childminders and PVI. So yeah, real passion for early years and really delighted to be part of this podcast. So thank you very much, Alex. That's great. And if our audience has got a passion for the early years, this podcast for you is going to speak to some brilliant colleagues. So let's get going. I'm delighted to introduce our first guest, Claudia Cousins, Deputy Head of Early Years and Prevention Development at the Anna Freud Centre. Claudia, can you just Tell us a little bit about your background and then and then the work of the Anna Freud Centre, please. Yeah, sure. So I'm um, actually by training, I'm an I'm an adult therapist, although I'm based in an earlyism and prevention department. But I think that actually it works quite well to have that training because we look at sort of families as a whole. Um, and so having that adult training, but working in a sort of uh, policy practice and clinical department that focuses on on the perinatal period and, and children under five um, actually works really well together. So um the Anna Freud Centre as a whole, it's it's quite interesting because it's it, our work is so rooted in the history of, of Anna Freud, who originally started working with children who were traumatised and left homeless during, during the war. Um, and she also sort of set up a lot of training for the cohort that became the first child psychotherapists in the NHS. Um, and the reason why that's relevant to our work now is because we still sort of bring in this lovely combination of clinical work, policy work, training and and research and we try to kind of combine those so so we're looking at um the well-being of children and families but within a wider context of the system and and looking at how we can sort of impact the system as well as individuals thanks claudia yeah it's i mean obviously a great reputation of the anna freud center itself and you know i'm sure if you uh your support is really welcome in in the profession at the moment um because I'm not sure if you know want to expand on, you know, how you've been sort of um, helping the earliest professionals to deal with some of the PSED challenges they're currently facing. Mm. Yeah, well, it's really interesting this focus on um, PSED because, you know, in the earliest foundation stage, it's obviously one of the three strands to that. But what makes it important, I think, is how it sort of impacts those those other elements, so like speech and language, like physical development because it has that kind of underpinning um, that, that hinges on relationships. And I think that's something that can, that is so important, obviously, that relationship between, you know, infant or child and their caregiver, but also with their practitioners. Um, and some of the, the the challenges, which we, we might go on to talk about in a moment, I think um, sort of are things that might add challenges to that nurturing relationship and the reason why that's so important is because it kind of helps a child with um 
developing a secure attachment and therefore their sort of ability to self-regulate and to um, manage situations that might be difficult, not just within their own family. And I think this is an important nuance, but distinction, but but difficulties that are happening because of wider social and cultural challenges as well. Um, and I, I, I do want to emphasize that because I think a lot, especially a lot of clinical work can really focus on the individuals involved. And of course, that's important. But that individual relationship can really be undermined by the more systemic uh, challenges. Personal social emotion development is one of the prime areas and how it, you know, it's really crucial how it underpins so many other areas of, of learning and development. Obviously, I know you're involved in lots of different projects at the moment. Um, and I just wondered if you could sort of, yeah, talk about how you sort of been involved in um, policy and research work and can be supporting sort of early years practitioners who are really busy at the moment working on the ground floor in, in settings with children and families. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, one of the networks that we have is called Early Years in Mind, and that's an opportunity for us to, to link in with early years practitioners who, like you said, are so busy. So we try and kind of translate and make resources that are accessible to them. Um, and so we we kind of find out what issues might be, might be really relevant at the time um, and then try and kind of adapt that into a creative way, whether it's through a webinar, through newsletters, through resources. Um, and I think one thing that we're really keen on doing is making sure that we collaborate with organisations and individuals who might have an, a sort of spe- uh, a, a, an, an expertise that, that we that we might touch on, but don't always have. And I think it's really important to recognise that. So, for example, this year, two of the resources that we've co-designed, one's been around neurodiversity, one's been around racial socialisation in the early years. Um, and so we've kind of joined up with academics and, and, and specialists on that to, to create resources that can, I guess, the, the perception is that they can be very complex. And I think they are in some ways, but often there's also very, some very simple um, sort of responses and tips we can present to, to practitioners that might actually be across the board, but with just simple adaptations for the particular group of, of children that we're working with. So for example, one of the, um, in, in our one of our PSED resources, we talk about skills like mirroring and empathy and even sort of physical touch and how that can support children with self-regulation. And then if you kind of apply that to a particular group of children um, that might have specific needs, there might just be very kind of um, sort of simple techniques that a practitioner might do, which aren't about, it's not about having expertise, but it might be about talking to the family to find out what touch means for that specific child or, or you know, addressing this in, in peer supervision if, if that's possible at the setting. Um, so we try and kind of give pragmatic solutions to what could present as quite complex problems. On, on the well-being, I promise I'll come back to the policy, but I think that the, the well-being of staff is an important end in itself, but it's also so significant to the emotional regulation and development of, of the child as well, purely because it the sort of process of self-regulation or, or co-regulation hinges on, on two individuals or a group of individuals. So by neglecting the, the well-being and um, the that might be influenced by those more systemic challenges it's actually having quite an indirect impact on on the child's well-being and and development as well yeah especially if if you know as we know 
for many, you know, in terms of the other challenges around recruitment and retention, where that key person role is so crucial. But I know that so many nurseries at the moment and settings are having to rely on a lot more on agency staff. So those sort of things, not having kind of the regularity of familiar, familiar staff can really have an impact and, and compound these issues even more, can't it? So, um, and, and the impact also then on the, the permanent staff that are in the settings and about how that how they're trying to like, you know, hold everything together and um, for, for the children, but equally for, um, for the existing sort of permanent staff. So yeah, so many things that are really important for people right now. Yeah, and it, it does sort of translate onto other sort of, sort of policy areas as well. So the reason I mentioned family hubs is because although the age range of um, children and, and families who that family hubs are supporting goes up to 18 or 25 when the person has special education needs or disabilities, um, it's early help as well as having a focus on early years too. And so that kind of preventative support and thinking about the systems is, is so important. So while there is that focus on the first 1,001 days, um, it's also kind of thinking about early help as in early intervention so early on in the development of an issue or a challenge rather than just early on in the, the life of a child yeah absolutely um, and, and relationships do come into that as well so relationships within the workforce relationships within the structures behind um preventative services so we we talk to practitioners and governance um governance strategic leads as well about what are the systems that underpin good integration in integration of the preventative services that are involved um so i think there's kind of there's a, there's a lot of buzzwords but essentially it's about understanding that it's that there are many structures at play but the thing that kind of makes it coherent is the relationship between those structures and a kind of a, approach of um flexibility and understand a desire to understand what's going on beneath the, the the surface of some of those structures and and again that's kind of a translation of, of a clinical concept like trying to understand what's going on underneath the behavior similarly trying to understand what's going on beneath a particular policy initiative or retention issues I think that's a really useful explanation Claudia yeah I think that's a really interesting way to look at to look at that um and, and, and also you talked about family hubs, but also we know we have um, stronger practice hubs as well that um, are becoming more involved in, in some of that um, policy work. So that's really useful as well, isn't it? That there's, there is beginning to be sort of other um, agencies and other sort of support systems that we can kind of, that we can draw upon. Yeah, and, and one relationship as well to pick up on that's probably relevant for both is the um, interaction between the voluntary and community sector as well. And I think one of the reasons why that's important is because there will be existing networks and relationships where, that, where there's already trust built up between practitioners and families. And a lot of the time that, that already happens in voluntary community faith sector organisations. And so going back to what an early what might be helpful for early years practitioners is when they're kind of getting to know that family thinking about where their support networks already lie and from a time perspective as well as what might be most helpful for the family it, it might not be that that earlier practitioner has to take on lots of re more responsibilities it could be that if they know the kind of network that a family is already existing in how can that be tapped into um to to provide support that already it might be might be helpful for the family. That point, Claudia, it feels like the importance of joining up different services and supports. And yeah. um, perhaps one observation in the at the moment is 
um, almost post-COVID, there's been a greater recognition more broadly than before of, of the challenges of the sector, but also the importance for young children and the, this early stage. Do you sense there's both positives, but also challenges around this kind of recognition and then and then almost this massive support that, that colleagues are trying to navigate? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a really important question because lots of the different policy or practice initiatives, um, sometimes we hear the phrase uh, initiative fatigue uh, from, from practitioners. Um, but I think a, a helpful way for me anyway to look at it as someone who's also trying to navigate what all these different things are um, is, again, just, just to go back to what it can mean for the family. So if you take family hubs, for example, that one of the one of the the, the benefits of, of family hubs is about trying to provide a, a sort of seamless um, thread from the perspective of the, of the family. So despite there being different initiatives, what the, the, the I think what practitioners are trying to do and people who are de- designing and developing and transforming these local authority initiatives is think about it from the perspective of the family. And when that happens, in a way, it doesn't matter which part of the initiative the, the service is coming from, but we're thinking about supporting a family to tell their story once if that's what they want to do and again build build on existing relationships where that trust already exists so not trying to that idea of flipping hard to reach on its head for example not trying to make a family come to a particular um space or virtual space but doing enough research and understanding where those families already are that might support them so those relationships are so so important, aren't they? And you know, and, and knowing as a practitioner that in, in in the early years we do have that real close contact with um, families from the start into sort of just like you said, just to have those informal conversations, you know, at the door, you know, when when they're sort of like with you know dropping off children and just whenever wherever possible, just to, like you said, to just to find out as much it's about where they're accessing support and what their needs are and actually what they want because often, like you said, I think there is so many. We do get initiative of fatigue, I think, as practitioners, but equally maybe families too. So um, you don't want them to feel overwhelmed or saturated, um, but to actually be meeting, meeting and, and being tailored to what they what they need and what they want. Um, I just wanted to pick up on some of your other work that's really important around building knowledge, you know, around knowledge and skills around the area of personal, social, emotional development. And I know that you're um, been uh, contributing towards the earliest professional development program uh, and I know some feedback from practitioners that they find it really really useful like, I don't know if you can just if you want to share any of that um, any information about about that work you've been doing yeah I mean I mean some of it I've kind of touched on a bit in the content but I guess it's thinking about how personal social and emotional development feeds into uh, or acts as a foundation for other learning and development as well um, and some of it is quite sort of um, well I guess the theory it's rooted in is in attachment and relational practice so so building on those attachment bonds that already exist um, when when there's a sort of tricky situation for families sometimes thinking about how to enhance that relationship and again not falling into a trap sometimes of of um, locating a problem or, the, or an issue inside the head or the person of the, or, or the brain of the child or, or the the caregiver but thinking about what's going on for them um in their lives that might be difficult that might um be be presenting as as a behavior issue for example 
Then there's some other kind of quite practical tips that we talk about. So those things around empathy, um, around yeah, the, the touch or approaches that can help with co-regulation. And you actually mentioned one early, earlier, I think, which is around consistency. Um, consistency is something that we talk about a lot when we're uh, sort of supporting early as practitioners in, in their practice. Um, staff well-being is another one. Um, and I guess that... Uh, what kind of contributes to staff well-being that's perhaps within the control of some settings is um, the types of support that, that that they might get. And it is difficult from setting to setting and will depend on, on what resources they have. But, you know, if possible, there where there are opportunities for things like peer, peer supervision or group supervision when one-to-one supervision isn't available or an option. Um, but we also recognise that how difficult that is for for earlier settings managers to um, to put in place when when it, when they're so busy as well. Yeah, I think you know my own experience of that. I think we, you do the best you can in in yeah. your circumstances, but I think you know that you can never you know uh, devalue the the role of supervision and, and what and how that you know is so useful and crucial mm. with what, um, staff wellbeing. Obviously, safeguarding has to underpin everything, but anything that can increase and enhance the amount of time that that practitioners and children just get to play, I think, is so important for for development and um, and well being for, for everyone involved. Yeah, just creating that time and space to develop um, those critical relationships. One of the things that stands out is is both yourself and, and the work of the Anna Freud Centre. It, it cuts across lots of really positive programs and areas of, of work and support. Um, I just want to ask a question in terms of that personal, social, emotional development. What would you say is the current kind of state of play that you're kind of noticing? Is there any kind of shifts or, or is there a kind of a, a sense of the challenges out there in the system right now? Mm. Yeah, I think some of the challenges, and, and I'm saying this kind of... Um, I guess on behalf of some of the conversations that we have with with earliest practitioners who are, who are part of our network. So one of the challenges might be around um, a worry about what a reduction in the staff to children ratios might might do and the impact that that might have um, on the, the one-to-one time that, that helps to kind of improve or, or, or work with that, that attachment bond. Yeah. Um, I'd say another challenge might be how to use some of the available sort of research and data that, that's there and translate that into work because we've, we've talked about the importance of rela- individual relationships and families and, and things like that and that's so crucial but also what, what managers and maybe local areas might also want to take into account but it might be challenging to have the time um, is what local trends are and, and I say that with... Um, sort of equality in mind and equity, uh, thinking about what data and um, information is available that might feed into the, the work that is done on the front line um, and make it so that pr- the practice can be as inclusive as possible. Yeah, that's great. And to, to move from challenges to kind of opportunities mm-hmm. and, and hopes, I feel, feel end on a positive because I think there's so much amazing work happening right now what are your hopes for the future development supporting earlier settings and and leaders and practitioners yeah I I mean I think play is is one of them definitely that I mentioned earlier and another perhaps sort of internally at the Anna Freud is to continue with our participation work so um, the resources that you see on our website and and 
some of the contributions to our earlier webinars as well. Often features um, people, uh, caregivers from our participation team. So I think for us, that's really important to make sure that we are the information that we're using to inform our work is informed by a mixture of policy and evidence is one thing, practitioners is the other, but also families themselves. Um, so I think to try and sort of close the gap between the experience that families have and, and what they want and what's useful for them with the service provision and, and design that's happening. Thanks, Claudia. That feels like a, a really positive appropriate place to stop and just say a big thank you for for your time um, for the podcast but also thank you for all the brilliant work that yourself and uh, colleagues at the Anna Freud Centre are engaging in. Yeah thank you Claudia. All right thanks for having me. I'm delighted to introduce our second guest it's Ruth Coleman who's Highfield Nursery School Head Teacher Ruth, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background? Hi, everyone. Um, I first started at Highfield in 2009 as a newly qualified teacher. I didn't think I'd go and work in a nursery, but the opportunity came up and I did. And I'm still here now. So um, I took over as head teacher in 2019. And we've always been looking to um, develop our staff and develop what we offer at the nursery. So um, we became a, a teaching school, then a research school. Um, and in November 2022, we became one of the first stronger practice hubs designated. Um, and that's the work that we're, we're continuing with at the moment. Wow, I'm very impressed that you were a newly qualified teacher at Highfield, uh, Ruth. I never knew that. So that's great. Um, so just thinking about your reflections on um, the priorities for children's personal, social, emotional development, what are you sort of seeing within your network at the moment? We're still seeing the impact of COVID. Um, that's really clear on our youngest children. And if you think about the children in nursery at the moment, those children were born in the first lockdown quite a lot. Um, and parents particularly have been very nervous this year about leaving their children. Um, we've tried to address this in a number of ways. So we've extended our um, parents' evenings, our induction evening in the summer. So we've just had an induction evening and we gave a lot of time for parents to ask questions, to meet with the teachers and the, and the, the key people in the nursery and ask those really important questions that they'll be worrying about otherwise over the summer. Um, and we've extended our induction process at the start of term as well. So um, we have a home visit. We, we now allocate an hour to each family to go and visit in their home. And then um, they have the opportunity then to come in to nursery and do some sessions together with their child before they even think about leaving them at nursery for the first time. And transitions have always been really important, but it's felt since covid when parents were stopped at the door and weren't able to come into nursery, that we need to rebuild those relationships and rebuild um, parents' trust in leaving their child at nursery. I think it's also important that we've got the emotional classroom right. It's thinking about not just whether there's a sand tray and there's a water tray and there's mark making opportunities, but what it feels like to be a two-year-old or a three-year-old in our nursery. It's so important that the curriculum supports that um, and that our attuned practitioners are really thinking about how they co-regulate these children who, who perhaps haven't been left alone before um, and building up to that self-regulation that we want to see in, in our young children prior to going to school. Yeah, and building up that trust with um, parents and carers and, you know, families is really important, isn't it, Ruth? And I'm really hearing that 
um, in the way that you're sort of, you know, creating that nurturing environment within your nursery school. And I think that, you know, that will sort of really ring true for a lot of people that are working within the earliest profession at the moment. So thinking about, um, you, you've touched upon some of the things that you've been already doing to support your parents and carers. Um, are there any sort of other things that you hear from, from, from families that they sort of particularly ask for around supporting their children with personal social emotional development? There certainly is. Um, we've found that parents really have missed out in those formative years, um, going to toddler groups, going to, to groups where they can chat with friends about when to start toilet training, when to start weaning, and that we found that was a real um, missing link as children have started nursery over the last year or two. So we've we've put in place um, additional sessions on toilet training and that parents can come along to. It's a non-judgmental session just to get advice and tips on how to start that process. Um, and we've found that children you know, have picked it up really simply and quickly once everybody's working together to to support the child. So the parent feels supported and that they know that the nursery are following their routines. Um, but that's been really important. Um, and, and that other part about children managing big feelings, um, we've found that, that the emotional um, dysregulation that we're seeing with children can be bigger and be felt more with, with children at the moment. So lots of practical advice for parents. So Things like, um, you know, giving the children choices. So parents in control, but the child gets a choice. Do you want to wear the red shorts or do you want to wear the green shorts? So the parents controlling what the children are wearing, but the child feels like they have a choice. Do you want sausages or fish fingers for dinner? So the child has a choice, but the parents in control and it's not a completely open choice. And that works really well. Um, and, and that's a, a process that we use at nursery as well. So the children are getting the same message, whether they're at nursery or whether they're at home. That's so important, isn't it, to get that consistency between different approaches that you're using at nursery and with families. Ruth, can I just pick up that point about communicating with parents and just um, how have you gone about doing that? Are there any challenges with, with that communication? The kind of Some of those messages that you're sharing are really valuable, but sometimes they're a bit challenging as well, aren't they, for parents? They are absolutely. Yeah. And there's no easy, easy route to it. It's, you know, about every single day, opening the doors, welcoming the parents in. We invite them into the classroom at the start of the day and at the end of the day. And it's about, you know, just having those small incidental conversations. So the parent might say to you, um, oh, he's been up since half past four this morning. He had his breakfast at five. So we know that it's really important to have snack early or to provide some more breakfast as, as soon as the child's in. Um, it, you know, things like, uh, you know, quite often parents come in and go, oh, he's had a really rough morning. It's been so difficult. And then we want to give a message back to the parent at the end of the day that actually we've had a really lovely day with their child. Um, it's not been about he's had a rough day all day, because I think when parents drop off, sometimes how they've left their child is how they imagine their child's been throughout the whole day. So things like um, Tapestry, which is our online learning journey, if we know a child's had a difficult um, separation from mum that morning as soon as they're settled and happy we'll put a photograph on tapestry send it to the parents so they can see on their phone at work yeah he's fine I can get on with my day now I don't have to worry but it's it's not an easy thing and it's not a quick thing you've got to build the relationship over time but it also means when something tricky comes up and a parent needs to talk to you about something that they're worried about they feel more confident in coming and do that because you've had those conversations each day and I suppose it goes back to just knowing your parents really well, isn't it? Like what works in one setting won't necessarily work in another. It's about getting to know your parents um, and carers and to know, you know, what 
preferred sort of uh, methods of communication works for them. Um, so yeah, really, really lovely to to hear that. Absolutely, and it's tricky for parents who work. You know, I'm a working mum. I have young children. I don't always get to do the drop off. So we're really aware of parents who might use childminders or grandparents to drop off. That we keep that communication open for for mum and dad, so they have the opportunity for phone calls with staff. Um, we run Saturday days um, called Highfield Hands, where parents can come and, and play in the setting. Um, phone calls and emails and tapestry then becomes really important as well that we can share those messages but we don't want any parent to feel excluded because they're not the person dropping off because you know working parents have to go to work and there's no judgment on that but we need to make sure that that they get the same access as the parent who can drop off in the classroom every day. What comes through Ruth is just that real clear intention to everything you're doing being really personalized about that um and, and if we go back, you talked about some of those issues, kind of that, that COVID reality that's still playing out. Just uh, can you just talk a little bit about at Highfield what you've had to do in terms of supporting colleagues in terms of getting to grips with this and thinking about you know social emotional development and, and the professional learning that's needed for that. Certainly, well, we developed a resilience tracker here at Highfield. Um, we developed it about in two thousand and twelve. And we're, we're very pleased that it's now part of the EEF's early programme development. And the resilience tracker looks at three strands of resilience, which are called I have, I am and I can. And that is the basis of all our observations around um, personal, social and emotional development for the child and the family around them. So I, I have is the relationship with the family. So what support network is around the child? The I can is um, what the child can show out to other people and you know their their um, ability to to have good speech and language and communication and the I am is the bit inside the grit the determination to know that they're trusted and loved that somebody cares about them that somebody will will worry enough to to register them with a dentist and make a doctor's appointment when they need it um, so we look at those three strands and it's a rag rating so it's a very simple rating that the whole team get together and and discuss the ch each child and rag rate each of the three strands. And that gives us a really clear picture of where we need to focus our work on the children. For children that score green, green, green across the board, we know that the emotional environment in the classroom, the continuous provision and the attuned responses from, from our, our staff is enough and that will, will help keep them resilient. But for those that are scoring amber and red, we need to put more work in and it's about that key person relationship. It's so important that the key person builds and the relationship with both the, the family and the child and can support the developing resilience. Can I just ask, so what are some of the learning behaviours that you're looking for from, from children? And, and you just talked about the kind of the colour coding system as well. And I'm interested in obviously the kind of dysregulated amber and red, perhaps, but also yeah. the, the green behaviours and, and, and what we're looking for. So in a green child, you're looking for a, a child who's comfortable in their skin, the fish in water, as I like to, to, to say to staff, you know, um, and for, for the more dysregulated children, it's about that co-regulation in supporting. So say a child wants to use the bike and all the bikes are being used at the moment and they look in their little toolkit and think, hmm, I've got nothing here except I'm going to cry or I'm going to hit the child who's on the bike and drag them off. So we need to add into their toolkit. We need to give them some more strategies of what to do. So an attuned 
member of staff will will go over with the child and say maybe you could say can I have the bike when you finish please um and then they'll get out a sand timer and say if you turn over the sand timer when it's run out you could try those words again and I'm sure your friend will let you have the bike they may or they may not but that's the the role of the staff in supporting that relationship yeah I was, I was going to pick a, a bit spuriously but on the kind of the green child uh, <laughs> some, on some days a green child might indicate <laughs> another worry to be to be monitoring but I get a real strong sense of you know the clarity that that brings and because obviously there's personalization and individual difference knowing our children and those families but but also there are some patterns of behaviors that we can look for and try and cultivate and I think I think that kind of tracker adds real value to identifying that in a shared way staff are really aware that resilience can go down as well as up so it's not always an upwards trajectory you start on red and you leave on green things like moving house um, a pet dying um, grandparents moving away will all impact on a young child's resilience so we're very aware that it can go down as well as up and that just because a child is green 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 in october doesn't mean that they're going to stay that all year round and some of those simple strategies that you just you know talked about that you're helping um, and giving children to use independently, you know, for some it, they may seem so obvious, but actually for for practitioners that are working, you know, with children at the moment, having those sort of simple sort of you know ideas um, and resources is really really useful. So obviously, we know that um, uh, you're also a stronger practice hub at Highfield, and you have you know excellent knowledge of the early years uh, profession and sector. And there's so many different types of settings, um, uh, types of settings that challenges and challenges that are being faced. And, and so understanding that research evidence in the area of PSED is really, really important. But equally, alongside that, you know, we're talking a lot about the well-being of uh, children. But equally, we know that um, earliest practitioners, um, well-being is really important, too, when sort of supporting children in this area and how busy they are and time poor they can be, too. So. I'm going to give you a bit of a challenge here, Ruth. So if you could pick one, what evidence-informed recommendation around supporting children's PSED would you suggest that practitioners working in early years could prioritise if they could? Well, I think I, I might I might give you more than one, just very oh, quickly. Oh, that's okay. Like, I'm sure they appreciate that. <laughs> I would absolutely say that the High Field Resilience Tracker, that although in very early stages of, of development with the EEF, is um, a great, place to start um, but also that um, it is in its very early stages so we're hoping that we can we can build more evidence around the tracker but there's the evidence store and the early years toolkit that are available on the EEF's website um, and it's really important for, for practitioners I know that lots of settings don't have great access to internet and they might be a pack away setting and they're looking on their phone but even if they could spend a little bit of time having a look at what's in the evidence store and in the early years toolkit, there's some great information about parental engagement. And it shows how a low cost practice can have a really high impact on um, the development of children. Um, and it doesn't always have to cost money. The changes that you can make can be made with, with a very low cost. So Ruth, just picking up on what you just mentioned there, I was only having a conversation the other day with somebody who was running um, a, a packaway setting uh, and they, they were talking about how isolated they were feeling and, and, in also, and also the, the challenges around accessing tech. So uh, hopefully um, people will be pleased to know that we're actually going to be uh, launching a sort of a one page poster of the, of the recommendations around the evidence for 
all the different themes that will be coming into the evidence store. So, for example, there will be a one page recommendation posted for personal social emotional development where we can really sort of just pull out those key messages um, from the evidence and make them sort of relatable and actionable for practice. So um, I know that you've got lots of experience working with um, different settings and, and how I know we've spoken before about it, making sure that we meet the needs of, of the different people that are working within the setting, you know, sorry, their sector in terms of, you know, not having always technology to access the videos or accessing things from phones. So, you know, having paper copies sometimes is useful. Absolutely. I think the work with the Stronger Practice Hub has really brought this home because I'm working with childminders, I'm working with settings across very rural areas as well as in towns and the the lack of access to um, IT has never been more evident Um, and as the budgets get squeezed all the settings are investing in children, they're not investing in a new laptop or making sure that the internet access is secure at their setting. Um, So I will always ask for, for paper copies and um, as a stronger practice hub, we will definitely be distributing those across our our reach area as soon as they're available. It's a really practical point, actually. I think really important that our audience hear that point too. Um, can I just pose um, a question? It's a really simple one, actually, uh, and quite quite short, but I think a nice positive way to end. Um, we've talked about um, the innovations around the tracker. What makes you go green about early years education right now? What should <laughs> do you know um i've never felt more positive about um the help and the support that is out there for early years settings i think the the stronger practice hub is using people from the sector um alongside the experts and mentors program which is the other part of the dfe covid recovery it's using people working in the sector who understand what it's like to be in a pack away setting you understand what it's like to be in a maintained nursery school and um, can offer that support and can offer really practical advice. And I think that the response that we've had from settings and childminders that we've worked with has been overwhelming. That's really positive to hear, Ruth. Yeah, right. I, I think I think we're all we can all be ticked off as green. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's lovely to hear about both the, you know the expertise and the amazing work at Highfield but also those interesting innovation about early pipeline work you're doing and then that point about there are resources I think we just need to make sure we support colleagues and at different various settings to cohere and make sense of a lot of that support as well absolutely uh, really powerful messages thank you yeah, really. thank you really It's now a pleasure to introduce our third guest um, and a lovely warm colleague, uh, Louise Jackson. Louise, can you talk about yourself, uh, your current role, and then a bit of your background too? We'd love to hear about it. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Louise Jackson, and uh, I've been a content specialist with the EEF over the past year. So it's been a real uh, privilege to meet some fantastic colleagues and to work um, with researchers and find out a little bit more about how the EEF works and how they uh, mobilise evidence across the sector. My background isn't in research, it's in uh, teaching and training teachers. And so I I came from uh, being deputy head in a primary school 
where we had a fairly large nursery reception classes. So I was head of the early years and key stage one. But alongside that, I'd also done some training with early excellence um, and also with the Anna Freud Centre. So um, I'd worked worked um, in early early years education for many, many years, um, both on the ground in schools and nurseries, but then also as a local authority advisor and as a teacher trainer. And uh, that incredible expertise and experience we're going to hear a lot from in a moment, um, but I know you've been really busy um, in this last year as well, particularly, uh, so lots to talk about there. It's been a pleasure to work with you over the last year. Um, and I know that we've been really busy working on uh, the Early Years Evidence Store. And you've been using your expertise and experience to uh, develop the uh, personal, social and emotional development theme for the Evidence Store. So I just wondered if you could share with people today a little bit more about what the actual Evidence Store is and um, what are the key recommendations that it makes, uh, that it makes around supporting children's uh, personal, social, emotional development. Okay, um, yes, the, the evidence store is, um, I remember when I first um, came to interview at EEF and we talked about this kind of knowledge wall, this wall of knowledge that was going to be really useful for early years uh, educators to be able to go into a, a sort of portal full of uh, the latest research that people could then use in their practice. And to me, that sounded like a really exciting project, but really early on, you couldn't, couldn't imagine what that would end up looking like. But the evidence store is um, the outcome of that project. It's, it's taken um, a lot of work, um, a lot of people are working together to build the evidence store, but it is that wall of actionable knowledge and evidence that people can uh, go into, they can go and use it. And I really think with the exemplification that's in there, it's going to really help people to uh, use the evidence store to transform their practice. I think if you've got a question, you want to go in and find an answer, find what approaches, what practices mm -hmm. can really help you. Um, then the evidence store is a really useful tool. Um, and those key recommendations, sorry, yeah. those key recommendations, aren't they, are really important because we know, we know, don't we, so much that at the moment, you know, there are many challenges for the sector and earliest professionals are really busy. They haven't got a lot of time. So just going in and be able to pull out these key messages from the evidence to support them to make sort of more informed decisions around their practice is going to be really, really helpful. Um, so obviously that's great, great sort of explanation of, you know, obviously a huge resource. Um, but yeah, so what are those sort of key recommendations for PSUD that, you know, that, that practitioners can use to perhaps inform their practice? Yeah. yeah, Nikki and I, you know, we both worked during the pandemic and we saw lots of uh, children who were really dysregulated, really anxious, really distressed, but it didn't end there when the pandemic ended. We're still seeing it now. And when whenever we talk to early educators, whenever we're out there in settings, we're seeing it. We're seeing lots of children who are really struggling. So I think that the 
five key recommendations in the evidence store for PSED are going to be really helpful. And it it's not rocket science. It's all things that we know. But I think we can be confident that there's the evidence uh, that says, you know, if you address PSED in your setting, it is going to make a difference, particularly to children who've been disadvantaged. It's also relevant for very young children. So we know that it's going to be really helpful if you do take action. And if you go in and look at these uh, five recommendations, there's things like um, modelling how to manage emotions and feelings, getting children to talk about and use vocabulary to describe their emotions and feelings and making those connections between what they're actually doing and their responses with what they're feeling. And I think that's really important for children to, to learn in, in early childhood and not wait till they're older and then finally don't have the words to be able to explain how they're feeling and to express themselves. But there's also around social communication and how adults and the interactions that adults have with children help us to, to model effective social communication. Um, and that's really important. Children don't just learn it by osmosis. They need to have adults who are modelling that, who are modelling the relationship skills and also how to sustain relationships. So all those lovely opportunities within early years where children um, can collaborate and cooperate with each other, then, um, you know, they're really um, helpful opportunities for teaching children personal, social and emotional um, skills that are going to last a lifetime. And of course, you know, those, you know, being able to go in and actually look at what that looks like in practice is really helpful and, and, and probably much welcome guidance for practitioners and helping to create, like you said, that shared language and understanding around those recommendations and what those, you know, what the evidence says around what's most effective for supporting children with their PSED will be really, really useful for the sector. Um, so yes, I thank you for sharing those recommendations. Can I, can I pick up uh, a point you made earlier, Louise, was about the kind of usefulness of accessing evidence and how it can just help um, support professional judgment, support practice. Uh, can you just give an example where a piece of evidence, piece of research evidence has informed your practice while you're working in an earlier setting. So I think that concrete example is really valuable. Um, okay, so um, obviously I've been in early years a long time and I learned early on how important it was to be able to articulate what you do and why. Um, and I went to a talk with Cathy Silver from the University of Oxford and she wanted to get her voice heard by politicians who really weren't interested in young children and early education. So she had to find a, a shared language and got involved in research, um, leading large scale studies and randomized control trials. So I, I found that really inspiring and I, I found that I could use evidence from her research, the EPI and the EPSI research, to influence policy decisions and secure funding, both within you know, schools and settings that I've worked with, but also as a local authority advisor. 
Um, so I was able to start to shape small-scale and countywide intervention programs based on her evaluations of early childhood services and parenting programs. Um, so for me, I felt that the evidence gave me a voice and helped me to articulate what we needed to do and why. And I found that really empowering um, and also, you know, gives you credibility in a very noisy and busy education system. Um, and I think that's really important at the moment. Yeah, thank you. It feels like um, that example there is about using evidence as a leader and using it to support change, but also to make change as well. There's something about kind of credibility, kind of, you know, there is a reality, isn't there, currently around earlier settings and and policies that are being enacted and funding. And, and we don't exist in this lovely vacuum where we can just read research evidence and do what we like. We have to fit within these kind of limitations and parameters. So um, it feels like you just described that how evidence can kind of just support that leadership process. So what then, um, what does evidence-informed practice mean to you then? And, and perhaps um, for that example, where it might be about leaders of settings, but also practitioners as well. Well, I've always believed that early educators need to be embracing and leading change. It's not something we can avoid. It's something that we need to be um, looking forward to and um, really getting involved and getting involved in that debate and discussion. So um, I think evidence-informed practice helps us make decisions it, uh, and it encourages to maybe challenge our thinking, challenge our practice. And there will be things that we stop doing because the evidence just isn't there. And that is challenging because it might be something that you've done all your career and you've always thought was evidence-based. And then suddenly you find, actually, the evidence isn't there. There isn't credible, robust evidence that sits, sits um, beneath it. Um, so I think also being able to distinguish between evidence-based practice and evidence-informed practice is going to be really important for us in early years because um, we need to be using our professional expertise. There's so many different contexts in which we're working. Um, there is a huge amount of professional expertise um, out there in the sector and I think evidence-informed practice means that we combine the evidence with that expertise, and it's going to um, again, it's going to be empowering. It's going to be transformational for the sector. Okay, that's really really powerful description. Um, one thing you said, and I just want to ask for an example because we often hear this about evidence is not just about kind of supporting you to do new things. It's also about reflecting on what we might do less of or stop doing. Um, but we're also a bit notorious for not actually doing that and not stopping. Is there anything that you could describe where you feel like, okay, I've actually do less of that and, and I will recommend people stop doing that and don't do so much of that. Okay. So, so, um, my practice was, was really based on the Reggio Emilia practice in Italy, and I really focused on uh, the environment as being that third teacher. And I still believe that's important. 
But I was really interested when I read in the Early Years Toolkit that there isn't the evidence that sits behind that, that it's having real impact. And so I had to really question all those times when I was rearranging the furniture, reorganizing the environment, was that going to have real impact on the children? Or was that just making my organization and, and the way I was working with my team um, feel much better? But the evidence wasn't there that it's going to make a difference for the children. And I think um, the more I read, the more I understand how important it is the interactions between adults and children, and that actually, whether you're working in a pack-away playgroup, if you're working in a, a, a community hall, or you've got a super-duper um, purpose-built nursery, those interactions can still take place. And so it's not dependent on the environment. I think... Um thinking about that what you're talking about reflecting on your practice and you know the creating opportunities to have those professional conversations um you know I know that we're all like I said before we're really busy but I know that even if they're sort of just little moments where you can sort of grab it sort of you know at the end of the day or just sort of in between working with children where you have that reflection about some of those things that you were talking about there Louise about you know how your your rationale and your and your thinking behind some of the approaches and practices that you're using and um and just you know checking in with each other because we also know that is as much for children that actually uh, you know earliest staff you know adore their job and love their job very much but actually it is actually very um emotionally demanding and stressful at times and so having that support network of a professional conversation is really useful isn't it do you think around you know supporting practitioners to really think really carefully about what they're doing why they're doing it and actually how how it, that's really important yeah. too I, you know I'm going to be really honest here that um you know professional conversations I think they've been really badly affected by all the staff shortages, um, there's no spare capacity within settings. So as a leader, how do you release someone from the ratios to come out and then have a conversation, sit down and have a conversation when there's no money to cover additional hours or training? Um, and so as a leader, I found those having those time for those professional conversations was really difficult. And I wish that I'd had the PD guide, the professional development guide um, that, that's just been produced for early years when I was working in nursery, because I think it, it helps you focus um, those, those conversations on what really matters. So there are the mechanisms, there are the five mechanisms that are picked out, which we know are evidence-based. So if I had been confident that the conversations I was having were going to have impact, that they were going to make um, help someone to move on in their thinking and reflection. And um, I, you know, I think the tools as well, being able to use those and that and cycle of conversations would have really just helped me as a busy leader to focus, um, yeah, focus on something that really mattered. And yeah, I like, the expertise from within the team 
tailoring it to priorities and needs within the context. And I think I would have done less of that, you know, sending people out for a one-day conference where it didn't really have impact because they weren't with the rest of the team and they weren't having those conversations because we just didn't have time. And using the videos, you know, is a really powerful way, isn't it, of um, supporting those professional conversations. And, you know, like you said, as much as it is, 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 is really challenging, you know, as an earliest professional, I think that, you know, working with such young children in such challenging times, I think deserve quality supervision um you know although that is challenging at times but it is a statutory requirement and so just any way that we can you know support leaders and, and managers to try and um support the well-being of their staff at this time you know is really important isn't it yeah so, I think it's really important given the you know going back to what we talked about earlier with what we're seeing um in terms of children's emotional uh struggle and um, the challenges that the adults working in early years are facing and that does have a knock-on impact and we know that you know to their mental health and well-being so the more we can have those professional conversations and support them through those I think it needs to be alongside all those wonderful teaching approaches and practices that are in the evidence store. Thank you Louise yeah so yeah so so lots of you know positives there for um, people that are, are you know that are out there thinking about how, what they can do to support children to develop their um, PSED and just uh, you know even if it's a starting point isn't it using the evidence like you said as that that sort of just anchor to kind of really think about okay what where can I start what what shall I prioritize first where shall I you know focus my efforts and my time and my budgets um, most effectively um, you know according to the context of my children and my setting and my staff. So Louise, going back to the um, to the recommendations, if there was one recommendation you would suggest educators working in early years would try to do, if they wanted to dig into the evidence around PSED, uh, you know, a, a little bit more, what would you, which recommendation would you sort of recommend? Um, I think I, I'd say get together with your team and think about um, when and where you see those five approaches in your setting. Are there any gaps? And if there are, then go deeper into the evidence and find out what practice, practices will help you implement that approach. And, um, you know, we know that it's the combination of approaches that, that have the most impact. But I think everybody can go in, into the evidence store. They can look at the teaching approaches and there'll be something there that you think, well, you know, we don't do that enough or we could get better at that. So start there and then delve deeper, uh, get in touch with your Stronger Practice Hub, find out if they're delivering any programmes or training linked to the evidence um, and then the other thing is to sign up for the early years update because EF are working on those new themes in the evidence store, including self-regulation and mental health. And those will be really closely linked to the PSED approaches. Um, so you need yeah. to keep looking at this because it's growing and changing. Um, it's not it's a live portal rather than a, a finished. Um, Absolutely. Tool. So, and we know uh, that you know back. 
young children are really complex to to research as well so we know as well that there's still um lots of uh, more research to do in this area with, uh, around you know with young children especially you know babies and you know really looking at that and how to um to, to develop more uh, research for this field so yeah so thank you louise yeah thank you louise uh, it stood out some of those practical tips around starting with existing practice working with your team they feel like um you could almost pass over those as oh yeah we do those things but actually they feel really precise starting points and really practical and important and i, I think nikki you made the point about evidence being like an anchor I, I really like that analogy kind of um this it anchors you in existing practice and scrutinizing that the evidence and, and that goes back to your reflections louise about the different kind of past experiences and and your evolving insights. Um, so thank you for your time um, and your expertise. And I'm sure um, if you Google these, there's lots of um, evolving insights, but also lots of expertise and some of the blogs that you've produced for the EF and some of your wider work as well, I'm sure people will find incredibly valuable, uh, just like this little window uh, of time to get your expertise, Louise. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that was great to interview Claudia, Ruth and Louise. And, and just some final reflections from us, Nikki. I think for me, what stood out really consistently and, and perhaps unsurprisingly is the importance of personal, social, emotional development right now. Obviously, there's the post-COVID impacts, and we know that that's impacted children in very different ways. But but broadly, I think there's a recognition of, of a more acute issue, and both a recognition, obviously, from practitioners and settings and families, but also at the highest level of policy and a recognition that we need to focus our efforts here. Yeah, absolutely, Alex. And I think we you know, we've always known it's been important. It's been a prime area, but like you said, even more so at the moment. And I think what I really found interesting was what some of the things that Claudia was talking about, about having that real holistic view of not just the child, but, you know, of, of the child's family and the community and really making sure we're listening and tuning in to not just the children, but our families to make sure that the support that we're signposting them to or providing is really tailored to to their needs and what and what actually they think will will be benefit themselves and their children and that and and you mentioned about that signposting it feels like in a really positive development you have family hubs you have stronger practice hubs and a freud center um def we've developed a lot of our our work in this area so we have the evidence store now and the early years toolkit updated so it feels like actually there's a timely set of supports at a point where it's really needed but then there's the support to access the supports, isn't that? So, you know, kind of really busy, time poor, you know, practitioners and leaders of settings. So we need to support that that capacity to to target this area really well. Okay, yeah. that's a that's a great place, great place for us to stop. I think the lots of positives there, lots of support factors, but but challenges to tackle. Um, just to say, um, for all of our listeners, thank you for joining the podcast if you want to look at the amazing back catalogue you've got lots of things that relate to some of this work you've got early high quality talk and language we've got metacognition leaders being evidence informed uh, it feels like there's there's lots to dig into in the back catalogue so press subscribe on the evidence interaction um, podcast and hopefully we'll see you again uh, Nikki thank you for your time and your brilliant co-hosting once more 
Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I hope you, I hope you find this very useful. <laughs>